Welcome back to Spotlight 19, the podcast about local issues and congressional politics here in New York 19. This is episode 17, a special edition for you all featuring Sarge's discussion with Democratic candidate for Congress, Dave Clegg. With Dave, now we've had on all the candidates who have filed to run. This includes John Fazzo, Antonio Delgado, Gareth Rhodes, Brian Flynn, Pat Ryan, and Jeff Beals. We are hoping that those listeners who are registered as Democrats here in New York 19 are listening to these interviews so you can make an informed decision in the June 2018 primary. So, without further ado, here's Dave Clegg. Today, we are lucky to have on Dave Clegg, a Democratic candidate for Congress here in New York 19. He's our final candidate to have on, and we're so lucky to have him. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Saja, and I want to thank both you and Justin for the good work you're doing. I think it's important, and I think it's helpful to the electorate. Thank you. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background and roots here in New York's 19th Congressional District. From what I understand, they go back uh, quite a ways. They do go back quite a ways. I first came to the Hudson Valley when I went to the College at New Paltz, and that was back in the early 70s, and I fell in love with the Schwangungs and the Catskills. So when I was about to start a family, I came back to Kingston in 1981 with my wife, Karen, And we first moved to Kingston and then in Woodstock. And we've had a really wonderful experience here in the Hudson Valley. My children have been born and raised here, went to high school here. We've been engaged in the community in many different ways over the years. My roots originally came from Staten Island. I was born in Staten Island, and my family was a a poor working-class family. My father had been uh, the son of an Irish and Scottish immigrant, and he was raised as a single parent. And during the Depression, he had to leave school and when he was 12 years old and go out and help and support his family so that he never got a complete education. And he went into World War II and served honorably in the Navy and had a Purple Heart and was able to, to use the GI Bill to, to buy a house for his family. And we had my, my mother and five kids, four sisters and me. And so we were raised, and, uh, but it wasn't easy. We were a paycheck-to-paycheck house, and my, my father worked two jobs most of his life to support his family. And there were times when we thought we were going to lose the house. So I know what it's like to be paycheck-to-paycheck, and I know what it's like to be vulnerable. Uh, I was really fortunate as a young man. I took a test in, down in New York City for high school, and I wound up getting into Brooklyn Tech, which is uh, one of the three special high schools in New York that at Brooklyn Tech and Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. And I got an education that I wouldn't have otherwise had, and it really transformed me in a lot of ways, where I was in a school with a great deal of diversity, kids from all over the city, bright, dedicated students, and it really raised my level. And so I'm I'm a big supporter of education. I think it can make a huge difference in somebody's life. So coming back to this, we went to college, I went to law school, I went to Nebraska as a VISTA volunteer. Uh, I felt very important that I serve the nation in that way. National service is something that I felt strongly about. And so after I got out of law school, uh, even though I was in law review and other high-level student activities, I decided to forego going to a big firm in New York City or Washington, D.C., and serve as a VISTA volunteer and do civil rights work with the Native American 
community out there in Pine Ridge and Rosebud Reservations off of South Dakota. And I'm actually really interested to know about how working to defend Native American rights and I, from what I understand, after that, you have experience as a public defender has translated to your years in private practice here in Kingston. That's what you do now is what I read in some of your literature that's out there. Yes, yes. Well, I think what doing the work I did with the Native American community impressed upon me was the need to really support people who are, are, are getting pounded by the powers that be. Uh, I was uh, involved with the American Indian Movement out in Nebraska, and I represented a woman who had been terribly beaten, and uh, a civil rights case arose from that. And I was able to help win a very substantial case on her behalf. And it was something where there was, believe it or not, you could make a movie out of this, where she was beaten and, and thrown in the back of a police car and taken to the jail that was there. And while she was bleeding, left overnight, taken to the hospital the next morning, and the hospital refused to treat her and sent her up to the reservation. She happened to have been pregnant at the time and lost her child before she ever got care. So those kind of things happen in the world, and, and I was uh, motivated and fortunate enough to be in a position to, to bring some justice to the issue. And so when I came back here and, and worked as a, as a public defender, the same kind of issues come up where people are in some way harmed, seriously harmed. As a public defender, I, I think of the case, of, there's a, I'll call her Katie, and she had a drug addiction, and I was in the city court here in Kingston, and she was arrested as a prostitute on five different occasions. I represented her each time, and each time I argued as best as I could to get her drug rehabilitation, not to throw in prison. And she, Katie was just a wonderful person. She just made you smile. And we got along well, and, and time after time, uh, we'd get her some rehab, but she'd come back and she'd fail. And then I'd argue to the court again, and I'd do it till I was blue in the face. And, and sometimes it seems like you're not getting anywhere in life, and uh, you get frustrated, and the judge finally says, no, we won't do any more of this. And then 25 years later, I'm at the Benedictine Hospital, and a, a nurse practitioner comes up to me, and who is it but Katie? And she turned her life around, and, and, and she came and she said, you made a difference in my life. So that's the kind of thing that motivates me, uh, that kind of public service where you actually make a difference in somebody's life. And so that translates into my own practice where every, every client that I represent, I give them my best. And whatever harms come to them or whatever need they have legally, I do everything I can to win that case and to get them justice. And that's how I, I live my life. And so uh, I think all of that translates very well into being a public service in the political world. I'm not, I'm not there to be a, a career politician. I'm there to make a difference in the lives of the people I serve. And that's certainly admirable. And you filed to run a little bit later than our now five other candidates. What made you decide to actually run for Congress at this point in your life and at that point in uh, the race, which I believe was back in the spring of this year? Yes. I, I was approached about running in this race, and people who are politically connected in our area and, uh, and politicians who are, are good friends of mine talked to me about it. 
and the need for somebody to be local, the need for there to be a hometown person who would withstand the carpet-bagging accusations that have happened in the past two elections. And since I've been here for 36 years, I have voted here 35 years in a row ever since I got here. I have coached basketball, and my wife has taught school here for 30-plus years. And so we are entrenched in the community. I serve on multiple boards. Right now, as you probably know, I serve on the family of Woodstock. I'm also chairperson for the Human Rights Commission, and we're doing important work there. So I've, I believe in giving back into the community, and I believe that the best possible candidates are those, I would call them extraordinary, ordinary people, people who give back to the community, are committed to it, are committed to public service, have demonstrated that, and can stand up to whatever shenanigans the FASO group may throw at them. And we are kind of holding our breaths to see what those shenanigans are, because the, as the as time goes by, we see politicians stooping lower and lower, and we're hoping that doesn't happen here, but it seems like it may be likely. So another question that we had is, do you intend to seek multiple terms? We know that there's going to be a bitter redistricting fight coming up in 2020. And are you ready for that fight should you win in 2018 and seek multiple terms thereafter? I would definitely do that. I think it would be it would be wrong to take this for a two-year term because the next fight is so important and that will guide the future of our district so that I would be all in on that fight. And once again, I'd be representing what I think is in the best interests of the people of our district and our community. Sure. And moving on to a little bit of a different topic, I just received a letter from Representative Fazzo in the mail, even though I told his office to please don't send me paper mail and just let's save some trees and just send me an email. But anyway, it was explaining his vote from a few weeks ago to ban women's choice to have an abortion after 20 weeks of gestation. We also just witnessed the administration roll back a requirement of insurance companies that was put into place by the Obama administration to allow women to receive contraceptive care free of charge. What is your position on women's reproductive rights? It seems like the Republicans are, are making war against women to me. Uh, what, what comes first? Now, let me just start off by saying absolutely I feel like a woman's health and her body is in her control, and she is the one that makes a decision about them, and I have no right, and I don't think anybody else has a right to tell a woman what to do with her body and to carry a pregnancy to term. I will tell you just briefly a story from my own personal life uh, that that affects me more than anything else, which is watching my own wife give birth on the first, when my first child was born. She was in labor for 48 hours. Uh, there were bad things happening. She was going into liver failure. She had thrombocytopenia, so they didn't know if uh, a C-section would work because her blood may not coagulate. Uh, both of them were facing death, my, my wife and my child, during that process. Uh, I could never, ever me as a man tell a woman that this is not your choice this is my choice to tell you what you have to do here now on on women's rights i feel like what we have to make war against is unwanted pregnancies and of course that starts off with providing birth control the affordable care act did that and i think if you look at the the uh, the really lowering of both abortions and teen pregnancies you can address it to that and the programs that they have to dissuade young 
uh, teenagers from getting pregnant, which, by the way, the Trump administration is also defunding in the next year or so. So I don't get how you can call yourself anything but a destructive person if you're voting for bills like that that harm women and take away their right to choice. I understand that uh, in the past few years, you became a deacon at your church, and it's been presented to me, and I, I want you to correct me if I'm, in, I'm wrong, that your church takes the position of uh, being anti-choice. How do you square your views with your church if that is indeed true? And please correct me if I'm wrong. It's, it's not true. Okay, thank and you. And so I said, if you look at the discipline of the United Methodist Church, they state that women's body are their choice. It's not there. What, there's a nuanced view that you have to look at. The church is not in favor of producing more abortions in the world. So that it, that's a problematic issue. But in terms of choice, the Methodist church is 100% behind women's choice, and I adopt that position. Thank you for that. And that was a question that was a little bit sticky for me because I hadn't you know, looked into it in depth. But I'm glad you cleared that up because it has been a, a question that some other activists have asked me to sure, ask you. Sure. So I'm glad it's cleared up because yeah. that is the absolute truth. And this is the perfect segue into health care. Uh, we haven't had an interview yet where we haven't addressed that issue. Uh, we saw earlier this year John Faso vote to take away tens of thousands of New York 19 uh, constituents' health care by repealing the Affordable Care Act. And we saw more recently the Trump administration really devastate subsidies that stabilize the Affordable Care Act. Um, and we know that this assault is going to continue in the years to come, in the two years to come especially. Where do you stand on health care and what do you plan to do to combat this effort by Republicans, which we know is going to continue in the next few years, to uh, dismantle the Affordable Care Act and kind of return us back to the days when you know people had to make the choice of going into bankruptcy or uh, you know getting the care that they need? Yes, I am a hundred percent in favor of health care as a universal right. I believe it's a human right. I believe with a we're the wealthiest country in the world. Most other developed countries provide that. We do not. It's a shame. It's, we should be ashamed of ourselves. I, I do think that if we could do the H.R. 676, where we have Medicare for all, a single payer, is, is a great idea. Now, you might want to modify it. I've talked to doctors, and they say, well, we want to include Medicaid and Medicare in that bill. And so there's nuances there you might want to talk about. But if you look at the National Physicians Group, they say that if you do that, a single payer, you save $400 billion a year in administrative waste. All of that can go to, to health care. The, the money that's going to be used by this is not going to increase. It's going to decrease the amount that we spend nationally on health care. You think of all the costs that we pay. If you were to make it a single payer, we would save money, provide universal health care for everything that's medically necessary. Now, in the meantime, we don't necessarily get to universal health care from you know, A to Z in one fell swoop. Uh, the first way we stop all the, the uh, thousand cuts that are trying to be, uh, the, the, create the demise of the health care bill is to get a, a Democratic Congress. And we being in a, in a swing district, in a district that is targeted, that we can win, the most important thing we can do to make sure that our health care stays in place is to elect a Democratic congressman here in New York. Sure. And we're hoping that that's what happens in 2018. And another health care crisis that has 
come up in the past few years is this uh, issue with gun violence. And we saw earlier this month that there was a terrible uh, but unsurprising shooting in Las Vegas. You know, no one had the same reaction of shock as they initially did the first time there was a mass shooting because they've become run of the mill. Uh, Here in New York 19, there are a lot of gun owners. So the Second Amendment can get a bit sticky and controversial. What is your position on uh, gun rights? We saw that John Faso won't even commit to a bill that bans the bump stocks that were used in the Las Vegas shooting that enabled him to cause so much more harm. Right. Well, I, I think John Faso is, is amongst the crowd that is is beholden to the NRA and, and the corporate interests that are behind that. Uh, so he wants a 100% rating. What is shocking to me, and, and I've been having this conversation as I travel around this district, is to ask gun owners, and, and I know a lot of gun owners, and ask them, well, look, we have 50 to 60% of of our country that is shocked and appalled and, and upset and disturbed by the gun violence we have in this country. Can't we work together? Can't we work together to find a way that responsible gun owners can, can act with people who are afraid of, of gun violence escalating? Can't we work together and make some decisions? Usually, you know, I, I find that you can talk in a level of background checks and say, well, what about background checks? And they'll say, well, that's about taking my guns away. Well, what if it's not? What if it's just about finding if there's a violent tendency in a person, a violent background or, or a mental illness that might crop up that somebody needs to be concerned about? What if that's all it is? Well, okay, then I'm, I'm in favor of that. So I find if you can have a dialogue, if you get beyond that first question, are you in favor? You use the word gun control, and it's an anathema to a lot of people. But you talk about gun violence in a way that you, you reflect that people are, are really emotionally harmed by the fact that we're not doing anything to stop it. And, and I know there's no easy answer out there because there's, whatever, 300 million guns in this country. However many there are, I don't know. I'm just throwing a number out, but I know there's a lot. And I know that there's uh, 1% of the population is a tremendous amount of guns. But let's try and talk as a community and try and reach uh, something that will prevent the level of gun violence that we see, which is appalling. You're listening to Spotlight 19. Here's more from my interview with Dave Clegg. Here on the show, we often are critical of John Faso's votes and his positions. But this week, we actually saw that John Faso voted against the 2018 budget, which sets up the GOP tax cuts. And it currently includes the elimination of the state and local tax deduction, something that 30 percent of this district actually uses when filing taxes. And it's likely that he's going to use this vote to show that he's actually working for constituents because he actually went against his party and uh, voted against this bill that will also increase the deficit by one and a half trillion dollars. How do you intend to combat the narrative that he's probably going to use to show that, you know, he is more of a moderate than he has shown himself to be over the past year? Right. Well, if you look, they trade votes. So he had to fall on his sword on the health care bill, right? He said he wasn't going to vote for it, but he did because he needed to do that for his Republican Party to get the bill passed. So two other congresspersons voted for this budget, even though it's going to divert billions of dollars from New York State, harm the property owners, the homeowners of, of our district and every district in New York State, 
cost middle class and, and, and working class folks not any tax increase but a tax loss as a result of the entire uh, tax bill that they're proposing. All those negatives were there, so they had to push two congressmen to vote for it. So this time they give John Faso a, a gift. Okay, you don't have to vote for this because we have enough votes to do it. So the, the bottom line here is if you have a Republican Congress, it's going to keep happening. They're going to do this. So the point is, John Faso may take a pass here and then. They may give him a pass to make him look moderate. He's not. In every vote that he takes, he's voting in favor of the wealthy and voting in favor of the powerful. But if he wants to look like this, you've got to own what your party does. And your party is harming the middle class, the working class, the people of New York State by, by doing this budget and this tax bill. What are some of your plans for potential tax reform, which is something that is needed, and especially here in New York 19, where there are very burdensome state and local taxes um, imposed on us here. And, you know, John Faz always says that's one of the reasons people are flocking out of the district. We kind of disagree with his position on that because it's shown to be far less. And there are new people moving into the district as well. But what are some of your positions on, you know, tax reform generally? Interestingly, we talked about single payer, Medicare for all. One of the largest county tax bills is paying for Medicaid, and we pay for that with our property taxes. Property taxes are onerous here in New York State, and they're regressive. That means that there are people on retirement incomes that may have a nice house and may have an assessment that requires them to pay a lot of taxes, but they don't have the income. So there's an unfairness to that. And, and one of the things I want to point out, if you have a single payer, you remove that from paying Medicaid with our property taxes. So all of a sudden, I don't know what the percentage is off the top of my head, 30% or something, but all of a sudden you get a 30% reduction in your property tax bill by making it a single payer and using using the resources we're already putting to this to pay for it instead of property taxes. That's interesting because one of the, the workarounds that John Faso used to explain his health care bill was that he had proposed this ab- amendment along with Representative Collins that would eliminate that uh, Medicaid contribution from our county taxes. But of course, we know that that would not have been matched anywhere and it would just have been resulted in an ultimate cut to Medicaid, which so many people depend on. Right, right. Well, that was that was just a, a circular end around <laughs> because obviously it was going to come from someplace. So if it had to come from the state, then the state has to add taxes to the counties that aren't paying for it. It was going to wind up being taxes that we were going to pay for anyway. Uh, but yeah, the concept of avoiding the Medicaid costs through the county would be avoided if you had a single payer through the federal government. Sure. And we have had a very interesting race here in New York 19. We, at one point over the summer, had eight candidates who were running against FASO, which has now gone back down to six. What do you think of the race overall? And what do you think we need to do here as activists and constituents to kind of keep up the momentum? And as the race, you know, as the primary gets closer, how, what do you think we need to think about when we make the decision on who to vote for? The starting place is this election that's going to happen in a week from now, and we need to work hard. Uh, I'm an Ulster County resident, and I want to make sure that we have a Democratic legislature in Ulster County. I'm working hard, and and people that are supporting me are working hard to get legislators 
elected here. And I'm also going to be walking with some of the aldermen who are candidates who are in the city of Kingston next weekend. And so I think supporting this election and the Democrats in this election can create a wave moving forward. I am extremely impressed by all of the indivisible groups, Dustin Reedy and what they're doing. Uh, it's, it's an incredible grassroots effort that's being made here, and I see no sign of that slowing down. So supporting that in every way we can is important. Uh, when it comes to deciding at the end of this who is the candidate who best can beat John Faso, that becomes what I think is the most important question. Who is the best candidate to stand side by side and do what needs to be done to take him down? He's a very sophisticated politician. and Absolutely. And I think that uh, I have to say that my trial attorney skills come into play in that. I've taken on major corporations, big law firms from New York State and Wall Street, etc. Just me, a single practitioner, and I take them down. I win cases because I'm very effective, and I won't let somebody get by with shenanigans, with phoniness, and I wouldn't let him get by with that because he's very good at pivoting and very good at diverting the question, and you got to hold the line because when you're not telling the truth, you got to be you got to be confronted about that. And if I get the opportunity to do that, I would do it quite effectively. That's a great thing to think about because I think in our own interviews, and we've met so many people over the past year, and one of the issues they've brought to our attention is that in the debates against Fazo last year, there were some issues with uh, our candidate Zephyr Teachout, who was good in so many ways, but a lot of constituents who were actually campaigning for her felt like she wasn't taking him on effectively so that is something we definitely need to be aware of and i'm glad you're you're thinking about that so one last question i always ask this it's like take the pressure off and it actually gives us good insight into you guys so you've been campaigning nonstop, i'm sure since you announced back in the spring what non-campaign, non-political related plans do you have for the f- holidays or uh, the upcoming months that you plan to do here in New York 19? Well, w- we love Thanksgiving. Uh, so we have a big family get-together on Thanksgiving. And my, my wife's cousin is coming in from Thailand. And uh, her sister's coming in from San Francisco. And, and our, our, her brother from Penn State, he's a professor over there. So we're going to have, uh, you know, just a wonderful family gathering where we all get to eat wonderful food and, and talk. And, and it's one of my favorite holidays, I have to say, Thanksgiving, because you just have time to spend with each other. Christmas, as, as wonderful as it is, it seems a little harried at times, right, getting ready for everything. But, uh, you know, and certainly from my, my religious standpoint, it's a, it's a focal point of what we do. Uh, and uh, throughout the holiday season, we do some things that I really love. We have a dinner dance at the Bar Association every year, and it's my favorite get-together with my fellow lawyers. And we uh, do some foot-stomping, dancing. And uh, so it's it's uh, this a great season. I look forward to it, spending time with my family and, and enjoying our, our community activities. Great. So thank you again for taking the time to be here. It was great talking to you. We're really excited about, you know, all the campaigning to come. And uh, thanks for reminding everyone to vote on November 7th in the local elections. I know I'll be at uh, Hurley, I think, Town Hall is my polling location. And uh, thank you again. We hope to have you back on the show soon. Thank you, Sadia. 
I hope to be back soon. And that's what you'll find. You've been listening to Spotlight 19. When you come up to the house. Thanks for listening. We hope you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Until next time, keep the faith. Let go, and you're free.